Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me, your host, Elizabeth Musser, for another episode of my weekly true crime podcast, Justice. So I wanted to do something to commemorate Halloween's arrival. So not only will this episode be, but next week's as well are going to be Halloween themed. I hope all of you like the holidays because I love them. Uh, Growing up, my mom always celebrated every single one of them with me and my sisters, and I mean, there was no discrimination. She'd even get us daffodils every August 23rd and explained how Daffodil Day is a special holiday dedicated to finding a cure for cancer. Yeah, she's a saint. So I am really excited for this episode because joining me later for a phone interview is Bill Cannon, and he's a retired NYPD homicide sergeant who spent nearly 27 years with the department. Now, Bill actually co-hosts a podcast called Police Off the Cuff with fellow retired NYPD detective Mark DeMaio, and they take this comedic and behind-the-scenes look into their time with the department, current events, and basically everything in between. But with all of that being said, I cannot wait to share this unsolved case with you. It still remains a mystery to this day, an entire 38 years later. Get ready, listeners, because this case has a dash of all things ominous, which does make it perfect for this time of year. I mean, there's murder involved, drugs, a serial killer comes into play, then a cult. Oh, and not to mention Satanism, all literally wrapped into one. So lock your doors and cuddle your kitties because you are in for a ride. So on Saturday, October 31st of 1981, that's right, Halloween night, the police arrive at Ronald Sisman's apartment, which was on 207 West 22nd Street in Chelsea, New York, and they make their way up the Brownstone building to the third floor, which is where he resided. When they walked inside, which was around 7.40 p.m., not only did they find the body of 39-year-old Ronald Sisman, but his 20-year-old girlfriend, Elizabeth Platzman, as well. They were both vigorously beaten, knelt down, and shot in the back of the head within close range. Almost like it was execution style. So Sisman was shot four times, and Platzman was shot three The police believe the crimes took place sometime after midnight on October 30th, really making them true Halloween murders. Sisman's apartment was completely ransacked, as in the furniture was actually shredded. It was ripped apart. I mean, it it was almost made to seem like the offender was in search of something, but there was no sign of forced entry. So this led the police to think it was someone Sisman or Platzman must have known. Unfortunately for Elizabeth Platzman, it seemed like she really just got swept up with the wrong guy. She attended Smith College, which is a prestigious women's university, where she majored in art and was described as being this just really bubbly and very vibrant person. Now, let me give you a little backstory on Sisman here as well. He was actually running two large photography businesses out of his apartment at the time, so there were people kind of constantly coming and going, 
Not to mention, he had a vast selection of high-end equipment on display. So, I mean, at first the police were really considering the possibility of a robbery. But the thing is, there were only actually three items missing from the apartment. The identification of both victims, along with Sisman's 25 caliber gun, which would later on be determined as the murder weapon. So, according to a detective by the name of Joseph DeNicola, uh, the police actually removed a quantity of drugs that resembled a white powder from Sisman's apartment. And it was at this point that the police really started shifting the investigation and leaning more towards a drug-related robbery. But once again, drugs were recovered, and the only items, at least to their knowledge, that were missing were the identifications and Sisman's gun. So one last thing to know um, about Ronald Sisman was that just one year prior in 1980, there was a case filed against him uh, claiming he drugged and attempted to assault Melanie Haller, who was actually a popular actress of the time and even appeared in the March 1980 edition of Playboy. The case was, however, dropped when, according to investigators, Heller wasn't cooperating with the police, uh, whatever that means. I mean, did they expect her to be smiling when making the report or uh, I don't know. But I bring this up because there are some theories circling out there as to whether or not someone came looking for Sisman to kind of even out the score. Continuing on, though, this is really where things start to get interesting. In mid-October of 1981, a prison informant told authorities how a fellow inmate mentioned that his cult had a ritualistic killing plan for Halloween night and described it as an inside house cleaning thing that would provide human sacrifice along with the elimination of a perceived weak link in the cult. Creepy, right? Well, it really only gets creepier when you find out that fellow inmate was David Berkowitz. Yeah, that's right, the son of Sam himself. Berkowitz then goes on to describe his confidant, or so he thought, and I quote, the murder will take place in or near Greenwich Village. On October 31st, look for a kinky, or bizarre assassination. Males and females, their heads shot off, and they'll remove the evidence. So, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Son of Sam killings, or David Berkowitz, I'll give you a short debriefing. Uh, he was born in 1953, and not long after, his mom Betty put him up for adoption. It's assumed this was actually because of Betty's relationship with who we believe to be David's father. His name was Joseph Kleinman, and he was actually married at the time while seeing Betty and basically threatened to abandon her if she used his name and kept the baby. Cool dude. So David was then adopted and described as having a troubled childhood. He was very intelligent, although he showed very little interest in school. He did, though, show an interest in petty larceny and starting fires. In fact, he stated in a journal entry of his that he started nearly 1,500 fires in and around New York City. So, I mean, he was just really basically on the fast track to success. Um, his adoptive parents were said to have taken him to at least one psychotherapist 
due to the concerning behavior that he was exhibiting. When Berkowitz was 14, unfortunately, his adoptive mom, Pearl, passed away from breast cancer, and this just really did not seem to help matters because they were rather close. Then when David turned 17, uh, he did go on to join the military, specifically the army, and he served in South Korea, where he eventually was honorably discharged three years later. When he did finish with the service, he actually then went on to find and reconnect with his birth mother, Betty. She, at this point, pretty much laid out the details to David about his birth, and that just really did not sit well with him. He was rather distraught and actually wrote, and I quote, I first realized I was an accident, a mistake, never meant to be born, unwanted. A forensic anthropologist by the name of Elliot Layton describes Berkowitz's discovery of his adoption, along with his birth details, to be the primary crisis of his life. So Berkowitz resided in Yonkers, New York, after finishing his military service in 74, and he pretty much shuffled through several blue-collar jobs, um, his final being a letter sorter for USPS. So Berkowitz was living next door to a man by the name of Sam Carr at this point. Now, Sam had a black Labrador retriever named Harvey, and Harvey was said to bark a lot. Berkowitz claimed that this old neighborhood lab was possessed by a 3,000-year-old demon who demanded him to kill and then bring him the blood of young women. I know, you guys. So... This is how he actually would later on get the name Son of Sam, Sam being his neighbor and also the owner of Harvey, the dog. It was then in 75 that David Berkowitz said he discovered Satanism. Yay! Another great accomplishment to add to his growing list. Then in 76 uh, is when the killing began, and it actually ended not that long after in 77. All in all, there would be six people murdered and seven additional injured. David Berkowitz was arrested on August 11th of 1977, which was just 11 short days after his last murder. Berkowitz did seem to have a type, and that was young women, all with medium length and wavy brown hair. The resemblance between some of his victims and his birth mom, Betty, are uncanny. Many people have accused Berkowitz of hating the women over the years, and he was always kind of quick to discount that. He claims he doesn't hate women, but he just targeted them so they wouldn't have children who were unwanted like he was. Throughout his 13-month murder spree, Berkowitz would write and send notes to law enforcement and journalists, almost enticing them to find him. This drove the media into a frenzy, much like with the Zodiac. The people of New York were basically walking around in terror while the police were doing their best to find the killer. Or was it killers? During that one-year time period, everyone was searching for this so-called son of Sam. There were multiple sketches done of the assailant from the accounts of survivors and also witnesses. But they all looked difference. I actually have them posted on my website, podcastforjustice.com, so head on over there and check them out for yourself. Okay, so why am I providing you with all of this information on a guy that was incarcerated when Sisman and Plotzman's murders were committed? Well, 
When police were questioning Berkowitz about how he knew of Elizabeth Platzman and Ronald Sisman's murder two weeks prior to them happening, he pretty much came out and said, you know how people call me son of Sam? Well, I'm not the only one. There are many sons of Sam. Oh, and we're all actually part of a satanic cult as well. So Berkowitz then went on to explain that this is why the sketches all look so different and how he did not act alone. He said that members of the cult were going to break into a photographer's apartment near Greenwich Village on Halloween, and they were going to beat and shoot the couple as, quote, an inside house cleaning that combines human sacrifice with cutting off a weak link in the cult. Berkowitz claimed this was because the man that lived there had photographic evidence of the last son of Sam killing. So Ronald Sisman apparently had a pending cocaine charge against him, and the cult apparently was worried he was going to turn the tape into authorities, I guess to wipe his charge, which then would in turn lead the authorities to all of the people involved in this so-called cult. So Berkowitz explained it was at this point then it was determined to find Sisman, get the evidence, and kill him. Berkowitz actually even goes on to describe to police Sisman's apartment with such detail that he even spoke of the chandelier in his dining room. Also, he accurately described how both Platzman and Sisman were killed. But even with all of this accurate information, police state they don't have enough evidence to connect Berkowitz to Sisman and Platzman. After all, he was incarcerated. How could he have had anything to do with it? It's at this point, Berkowitz then goes on to name some of the members of the cult, including the actual Sons of Sam Carr, Michael and John. Now, John was actually a known friend of Berkowitz and also happened to look a lot like one of the Son of Sam sketches. The police begin to look into the people Berkowitz named and soon come to find that most of them have actually died since Berkowitz was arrested. And their deaths were, I mean, all surrounding very strange or suspicious circumstances. For instance, John Carr, he was found in his girlfriend's apartment, shot in the back of the head from close range. Sound familiar? Police also found the same demonic symbol scribbled in Carr's phone book that Berkowitz signed multiple of his letters to law enforcement and the media with. The Son of Sam case was officially reopened by police in 1996, but due to a lack of significant findings, no new charges were filed and the investigation was suspended. However, it still remains open. Berkowitz still continues to stand behind his claims of demonic possession. In 2015, he even stated in a nine-part video interview that the voice he was hearing was that of a druid devil and the original true origin of Son of Sam. Also, for your knowledge, Berkowitz passed three separate mental health examinations, which all determined he was more than fit to stand trial. He remains in jail today and has been denied parole 15 times. Berkowitz also now asks everyone to call him the son of hope because since being incarcerated, he claims, and these are his words, 
I've given my life to Jesus Christ, and he has let me know in his word that he has forgiven me completely. All my sins are washed away. David is even said to be a mentor of Christianity with Bible studies and all. This being the guy who also said, and I quote, I have several children who I'm turning into killers. I could talk about the so-called son of hope forever, but as I mentioned before, Bill Cannon agreed to talk with me and share some insight on his time working with the NYPD, and this was when all of this was happening. All right, awesome. Okay, so um, first, I want to start by saying thank you so much for joining me and for all of your dedicated years of service working to help protect our nation. Um, I even read that you were a first responder on 9-11. Yes, when did yeah, your – sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. Question, you didn't ask the question. Go ahead. <laughs> um, so when did your career first start with the NYPD, and what kind of inspired you to join the force? All right. I, I went on the police department January 21st, 1985. Okay. And I had my background was like not in policing. I had a degree actually in broadcast journalism, I have a bachelor's degree. Wow. So when, okay. when I got out of college, I was, um, I really needed money. I had no money, and my parents had no money. So I started tending bar to make money. And okay. I wound up doing that for longer than I wanted to because I couldn't get into the, I didn't really have the experience and background to get into uh, the broadcast journalism field, and I couldn't afford to do internships or work for free. So I wound up tending bar for a lot longer than I wanted to. So I took the police test more or less as a lark, not intending really necessarily to take it. Sure. And, uh, but I had family. My father was a cop and my younger brother was a cop. Okay. Uh, so when it came, when it, I got called, I, I decided to take it. And uh, when I went on the police department, I immediately took to it like a, a duck to water, and I loved the job. I really liked it a lot. So... It was the perfect job for me. That's awesome. So I had okay. a very diverse and really an interesting, interesting career. I started out uh, on the Upper West Side, and then I, I stayed there for a number of years. But I made sergeant early in my career. I, I had four years and ten months I was promoted to sergeant. Wow. So I was now a boss, and that 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 takes a big, um, it's a lot different supervising people than being, you know, just being in charge of yourself. So sure, yeah. That was a lot different. And then I, I still stayed on the Upper West Side, and I always wanted to work in plain clothes. And, um, okay. I, I ended up finding a lot of information that was kind of going back to the whole Son of Sam and David Berkowitz, maybe uh, possibly like all those theories um, were getting you know involved there. And the case actually was reopened then, I saw in uh, 97. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have, or like, were you involved, or you know, have any information you know, not, about I'm the case actually, at all? No, I'm not really even uh, familiar with that case. Could you just okay. tell me about it? And I'll... Yeah, so this and Elizabeth Plasman case. They were actually murdered. Um, both of them found on October 31st of 1981, mm-hmm. and pretty much it looked like it was an assassination. I mean, they were shot in the back of the head. Um, their place was completely ransacked. Uh, There was no sign of forced entry, anything like that. Um, But then two weeks before the murder happened, apparently David Berkowitz told an inmate, a fellow inmate um, in his correctional facility, that it was like a premeditated thing. 
and that, you know, this cult that he was a part of is going to break into a photographer's house on the night of Halloween, and it would be this uh-huh. brutal and bizarre killing, and um, all of this kind of interesting stuff. So there's a lot of, you know, theories going on, but it's still unsolved to this day, and it was just so interesting to me because the knowledge that he was able to provide um, pretty much came down to, like, the chandelier in uh, Sisman's apartment building. So it was just so odd. Well, but, you know, Berkowitz was a mailman. He could have been in that building. Okay. You know, and the thing is, is that I'm sure the cold case squad of the NYPD has that case. Okay. And uh, I don't know if they've looked into David Berkowitz, but, um, you know, sometimes they can solve cases even that old through the technology we have today, you know, like through uh, DNA and stuff like that. And I don't know what they have with that case, but, you know, a lot of, you know, 54 to 58% of the time, the um, victim and the perpetrator are known to each other. So okay. That's, that's where you first start, you know, looking into the, it's called the victimology. You okay. study the background of the victim and you look into who they had interactions of, what their habits are, what their alcohol and drug habits are, their mm-hmm. work. You look into their background at work, their education, their marital status. Uh, this was a couple, right? So you'd look into yeah. uh, whether they were true to each other. Maybe one was having an affair. No. Okay. You got to look into all kinds of different things, and that's called a victimology. And it simply means the study of the victim. Okay. Time, you know, every time you you have a uh, a question, you get an answer, and then answers deliver you more questions. You know, and that's yeah. How, you ever hear of anything called uh, mind mapping or data mining? No. Well, it's like it's like if I put you your name on the board and I start asking you questions. All right, where do you live? You tell me where you live. I put that on the board. Okay. You own, a, you own a car? Yes. What kind of car do you own? Okay. You got brothers and sisters? Yeah. Okay. What's okay. Their name? Where do they live? Next thing you know, the board is full of information. Okay. And yeah. Sometimes somewhere in all that information is the answer to investigation you know what i mean yeah and today today um computers do a lot of that for us you know back in 1981 there were no cell phones many times in homicide investigation now cell phones help solve the case because the okay. cell phone is a walking moving gps device sure know? and also the information held within a cell phone can tell you a great deal about a person their background who they deal dealing with the last time they got a text, the last email, you know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So that, that's, that's actually made homicide investigation a lot easier, as well that's as awesome. video cameras being all over the damn street. Yeah. All over the world. That makes things easier. And even more to the case now, and a lot of people don't know about this, is that Google can actually pull up any electronic devices in an area at a specific time. Wow. Which is incredible. Yeah, So if absolutely. you have a, time, a very, very specific window of time, you can find out who is in that area based on their electronic devices that were hitting either cell sites or other other uh, ways that they track that, which is okay. an incredible investigative uh, resource. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's just, and, you know, police departments have plate readers, which track the license plates of uh, cars coming in and out of locations. Okay. And they're, they're all over the city and areas 24-7. Yeah. 
So when a cause wanted, say, say a cause is suspicious, uh, I can't even talk. You're right. It's just a vehicle, say it's suspected of having, having terrorists in it. Mm-hmm. They can tell you what time that car came into Manhattan every day. Wow, that's amazing. Of course, amazing. it's a Brooklyn Bridge. It's just, you know, so all of that data, it's all over the place, you know, and that didn't exist in 1981. Right, so, absolutely. You know, there's, but, you know, there's ways that... Uh, an investigation, even that's that old, that they can find out information. Now, I don't know if the son of Sam, I've heard about this, he's claimed about this cult before. Mm-hmm. Investigators have looked into that or not. I don't know if they have. Yeah. But you can vet information. You know, people confess to things they didn't do all the time. Sure, I bet. So that's why you, you know information, and that's why they don't, they shouldn't put out Right. Information on a murder, because or else how are they going to question someone that's a crackpot, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So. And is it common for, like, cases to be reopened that are older, like, in hopes of um, having, like, evidence back then that you couldn't submit or with technology coming further? Or, like, how does yeah, that well, work? Well, you know, there's no – a homicide is never closed. So there's, okay. no, there's no statute of limitations on murder. Okay. So it's never closed. It's always open. And – most big cities uh, have called case squads. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they're always looking into these cases, and there's always someone working on it, you know. Wow, so, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, small towns obviously don't, maybe. Sure, yeah. Uh, the state police in some small towns might have cold case squads, but the NYPD has a cold case squad, and they, they're always looking into cases that are old. And, you know, revisiting them and re-talking to witnesses and, you know, uh, they they just solved the case. Um, I think it was last year or two years ago. It was called Baby Hope, and mm-hmm. this, this little baby was put in a cooler and found in uh, Washington uh, up in the in Washington Heights in Inwood um, oh Park. It was found. It was in a cooler, and it it was thought to be unsolvable. Mm-hmm. And um, through DNA, and I think it was solved through familial DNA. Wow. Uh, they ID'd the perp just like last year or two years, and he, they made it arrested. And it was it was her uncle. Oh, the my God. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But the case was open for like 30-something years. That's really cool, though, to hear that cases are being solved more now because of all of that stuff that's out there. That's amazing. That ain't, look at Ancestry DNA. That's oh, my gosh, I know. There's actually, um, I'm from the Hershey, Pennsylvania area, and there's actually like a local DJ. He lives probably 20 minutes from me, and this is about two years ago. He submitted his DNA for uh, Ancestry.com or whatever it was, and he committed a murder like back in the early 90s and got linked to it, so now he's arrested in jail. Oh, my God. What a genius, huh? I know. (laughs) Yeah, I know. So that's, yeah, it's just crazy, but amazing at the same time how far everything's come. Well, you know, DNA is mostly, most of the time used to um, solve sex crimes. Well, sex crimes and murders, but okay, they get they get what's called cold hits all the time, where they get a hit of DNA and then the guy's in prison for another crime. And the okay. special victims go there and, you know, he, he, they don't tell them that they're from special victims. They just say they're from New York City. They want to yeah. talk to them about something, and they, you don't just say, you don't just cut to the chase. You say, oh, were you ever in 521 East 14th Street? 
Oh, you've yeah. been in that building before. Okay. Yeah, you know, someone named someone, and then they show the picture, and all of a sudden, the guy, you know. Yeah. Look at the picture, and he's like, oh, shit, you know. <laughs> How did they know? How, wow. Do you know her? No. Okay. You know, because they have to slam the door on that. Yeah, yeah. They, once they break it to them, they say, well, you didn't know her. You were never in that building. How was your DNA found inside her? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, the guy's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Like, but you have to slam that door, else he's going to say it was consensual. Right. You know what I mean? So you have to yeah. say, you've never met her before. You don't know her. You have no business being in that building, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and so how you, is it consensual? Right, right. <laughs> so you, you slam the door and all of those things, and then wow. you break it to them later on. You know, so, they get cases like that all the time. Now. Yeah. And, like, when somebody does give their DNA or whatever, how, like, can you just keep processing it over and over? Or, like, how does that work? No, what happens, certain crimes, they have no choice. They have to give up their DNA. Sometimes right. they'll take DNA and they'll um, ask for a voluntary sample, you know. But only, CODIS, like, is one CODIS, enough? Yeah, once it goes into the system, it's in there. But CODIS oh, okay. is run by the FBI. Okay. So some, what a lot of police departments have been doing is collecting their own, making their own database. Oh, okay. It's much, it's much faster, and you know, there's machines now, and they haven't been approved yet, but they can process DNA in like two hours. That's amazing. But you know, they're not approved yet by the FBI. Sure. They get the stamp of approval by law enforcement. So I right. guess they're waiting until, you know, the technology comes full circle. But I I had a guy from a company that uh, came uh, came to our, our uh, school. I used to teach at Monroe College. And he um, gave an, he gave a demonstration on how this machine could uh, return D- DNA in, in two hours. Oh my gosh! So usually, when I was on the police department, it would take three months, four months. Wow! And I don't know how long it like say the president was shot and he needed it done. I yeah. don't know in actuality how fast it could come back. I'm not sure. Okay. Because, you know, right? Science to it, and there's all kinds of stuff, but. You know, there's wow. there's always a backlog. They're still making IDs from 9/11. You know. That's wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, yeah. Did you have like a, a favorite thing that you did when you were on the de- uh, police department, like a specialty or like just well, my favorite robbery job, or homicide? Yeah, or? I, yeah, I was my favorite job, and everyone that's ever worked it always said it was theirs too. Is the anti-crime, and that's where you go out on the street and play clothes. Okay. And you the violent street crime. That was my favorite job. I wow. did that for six and a half years total between being a police officer and a sergeant. It's okay. The, it's the most exciting. It's really, uh, but it's also the most dangerous, you know. I can't imagine. Yeah. But, you know, homicide was great, too. Look, I always wanted to make, like, when I, my goal was that when I was in my last whatever years, uh, that I would be in a unit that A, I liked, and B, that I could make overtime. And <laughs> both of those things happened. I loved working in homicide, and I made a lot of overtime, you know. That's awesome, yeah. Yeah, so, and, but I, yeah, it's just that I did almost 20, I did exactly 26 years, nine and a half months. Wow. Because, you know, they tell you, as an old expression of the police department, you'll know when it's time to go. And I knew, and I, I 
that's why I, you know, I retired after that. I had enough, you know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's an amazing time. Like 27 years, like, being with the police, I mean, it's just crazy to think that because so many people, I mean, 27 years anymore, that's, like, unheard of. So that's that's amazing. People do their um, and get out and do something. Yeah. Like and since you retired from the force, you now co-host a podcast um, called Police Off the Cuff. Could you that's tell right. me – and my listeners, just a little bit about it. Yeah, a police off the cuff. Uh, I also, I'm also a stand-up comic and an actor. That's awesome. uh, yeah, and um, uh, another stand-up comic, his name's Mark DeMeo, who is a retired detective. He came up with an idea that we do this this show called Police Off the Cuff, and we uh, have guests come on that were great police officers, detectives, sergeants, whatever. And they tell their stories. They tell their war stories. They tell their career stories. And mm-hmm. it's fascinating. But it's not just a boring, you know, there I was, you know, on the ice. Yeah. You know, it's not that. It's, there's a lot of humor to it, too. Absolutely. You know, we do a lot of ball breaking on the show. And uh, it's, it's a lot of funniness. But there's also a lot of um, real serious stuff, too. Yeah. Uh, we, had, we had Michael O'Keefe on, who happens to be an author of... Um, a book called Shot to Pieces, and he was the, the cop uh, in 1992, I believe it was, I could be off on the year, who shot and killed this perp by the name of Kiko Garcia, and mm-hmm. that shooting started the Washington Heights riots. Oh, my gosh. And it was, I, you know, it's an amazing story, but he, yeah. he told the story, and it was fascinating. And wow. that story was... Um, Recounted in his book, shot to pieces, but with different names. Protected, okay. You know. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. And oh. uh, you know, like people like him, we, and we've had uh, the show's getting very popular now. People call us up and ask, "Can they come on the show?" Congratulations, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, and we're actually getting picked up. It's supposed to happen in the next two weeks by a national company. That's and amazing. Police off the cuff show on national. You heard it here first. Yeah. That's right. So do you guys have, like, an office that you do this out of? Or? We actually, the first 40 episodes, which we finished 40 episodes, we actually shot it in my house. That's awesome. Uh, and But now we're moving to New York City. We're going to have a studio. We're going to have a producer. We're going to have wow. uh, an engineer, and we're going to have uh, – they're going to pay us, which is the best thing. Good for you. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that's pretty much all that I have for you. Um, but congratulations on your podcast, and thank you so much for well, you know, so all of your years. If you ever need anything, keep in touch, and, you know, well, us podcasters have to, have to stick together, you know? Yeah, that's right. It's a my, business, you know? Yeah. <laughs> my sister actually lives in uh, New York. She lives, like, by Brooklyn. So if I'm ever in that area, I'll definitely hit you up, maybe meet up to something and get coffee. Absolutely. That'd be great. And good luck with your podcast. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a great weekend. All right. You too. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks. Bye, Bill. All right. Bye now. Unfortunately for Ronald Sisman and Elizabeth Platzman, their case still remains unsolved. Was it retaliation or someone trying to even the score for Melanie Holler? Could it have been a drug deal gone bad? Or was the infamous son of Sam really involved? As always, I would love to hear any feedback and your takes on what you think happened. 
Don't forget to add me on Instagram at Justice Podcast and subscribe to my webpage at podcastforjustice.com for all of the latest updates and true crime you could want. Justice will be back next week for another Halloween-themed episode. As always, I'm your host, Elizabeth Musser. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and don't take pictures of satanic killings.